Thank you, Mr. Malhotra. First of all, I want to congratulate you on this tome, this big book. It looks big, but it's a well-researched book. I want to congratulate you on such a good job. I'm Ron Gupta. I'm president of Penn IIT USA. We represent over 50,000 IIT alumni in the US, and we reach out regularly to almost 500,000 IIT alumni globally. It's a vast number. Thank you very much. So for, I just want to uh, make a position it a little bit. Uh, you're all technocrats, so you understand disruptive technology. And when you disrupt the prevailing, uh, you know, the people with the current technology that you're disrupting to supersede it are never happy because you're disrupting them in order to go beyond. So the question is, what about disrupting social sciences? We have theories in social sciences that are quite solid, that have been around for a long time. Marxism, colonialism, all these kind of theories have been around for a long time. And so what, what I do is trying to disrupt those, because if you continue the same train of thought, non-disruptive, you're just continuing the whatever has been accepted. And my purpose is, to research where our civilization is not being represented accurately, properly, for whatever reason, maybe by error, by or by intention or whatever. And if the, the issue is superficial, I'm not too interested. But if the issue is deep and it requires disrupting the framework, disrupting the architecture, if you will, then I'm interested. Now, by definition, the risk is high. Because disruptive technology, as you guys know, is uh, more risky than just building more on the same technology, same framework. And I'm, I'm prepared to do that. But then to do this disruptive technology, which is high risk, high reward, I also have to do a lot of hard work, a lot of homework to make sure I'm right. Because typically in a disruptive technology, you're picking up very big players, giant players. I mean, they are the ones who dominate the current technology. And if you're taking them on, obviously they have huge resources. So in this case, this is why each of my books is designed like that. It is, uh, uh, if I talk, study five topics, four of the five are not uh, fit. Either I don't have a good argument, I will drop it. Or it is not disruptive, I will drop it because a lot of other people will take it up. Uh, only if it meets all these criteria that I'm absolutely sure that I can withstand the strongest uh, opponents in this discussion and it is fundamentally disruptive uh, and it will have huge consequences to us, huge consequences. 
then when these criteria are met only I want to proceed. So in this latest uh, latest work, <coughs> the reason it's called uh, Breaking India 2.0 is because I did a book a dozen years ago called Breaking India, which then became a whole metaphor. Now there's a lot of movements, a lot of people who started their own uh, you know, activism, the government has been affected, a whole lot of government policies have changed. Uh, the policies, several new, uh, uh, you know, strategies have come about in India as a result of that and various other books. So this is making India 2.0 because the forces that have uh, been active in undermining India's credibility and, and we can discuss what are some of the reasons and so on. Those forces are very uh, much more sophisticated now. They have the use of big data and AI. They have, uh, they are now no longer, it's no longer a matter of going to villages and converting poor people. Uh, but now it is more going to elite education systems, education institutions, elite industrialists, a planning commission like Niti Aayog, uh, you know, universities. So it's a top-down, they're taking on top-down institutions and structures and uh, doing things which are not in the best interest of our civilization. Not only India as a country, but uh, our civilization, wherever we are in the world, which affects diaspora also. So the focus on this talk today is one of these many things written in this book, one of the many disruptions. To tell you, frankly, the book looks very scary because it's big. But you don't have to read the whole thing. You read the introduction and the overview, executive overview, which is one page per chapter. So the introduction is 40-50 pages. There are 22 chapters. Everyone has a good, I think, a very well-written overview. If you read that, in, within 100 pages or so, you will get the whole idea of what the book is about. And then you can dive deep wherever you feel like. So, for example, what I'm... Uh, discussing the main talk topic today is this attack on IITs, which is chapter 4. You can just read chapter 4 by itself. Uh, if you want to read uh, something else, there's a chapter on that, you know, like that. <coughs> now, to, this is a book, I'm just, I just brought it here. This is one of uh, about a dozen important books. I'll discuss more of it tomorrow evening in detail. This is more. But this came out in 2019 and before that the, from a Harvard professor and published by Harvard University Press, which is the most prestigious academic press in the world. And before that, she and others had written articles, very important articles in 2015 and 16 and so forth. And even before that, there was a general uh, kind of a Marxist theory against the concept of meritocracy, not specific to any institution. She applied it to IITs. But the concept that meritocracy is something aristocratic and sophisticated and prejudiced to uh, the under underclass was being developed first. And then they started applying it to particular institutions. Now the argument is that, this is a Marxist argument, there's a very famous person called Pierre Bourdieu, a French Marxist who is no more. I got to meet him just in his last years. Uh, he had come up with this idea that, uh, a Marxist idea, that uh, culture is a form of capital because as you know marxism is against capitalism yeah those who have capital are oppressing those who don't have capital are the working class they're being oppressed so uh, but marx was only talking about economic capitalism 
So Pierre Bordeaux said that culture is a form of capital. So some people have etiquette, some people have manners, some people eat a certain way, they can speak with a certain accent. All these are forms of capital uh, that Pierre Bordeaux, B-O-U-R-D-I-E-U. I'll send you, I'll write it down for you. Yeah. So Pierre Bordeaux, so this is called, uh, this whole thing became sort of uh, Marxism, uh, cultural Marxism rather than economic Marxism. And so this cultural Marxism basically says that the aristocrats have taken their huge amount of financial capital and turned it into kind of sophisticated culture. They can recognize each other, the way you shake hands, the body language, the way you dress, all kind of cultural. And therefore, they privilege each other, they do business with each other, and then the underclass is suppressed because they don't have this culture. This is his theory. And so, these people then took Bordeaux's theory and applied it to the concept of meritocracy, saying that meritocracy is a form of cultural capital. So, there is no such thing as genuine merit. It means that if you say you pass this exam or you've gone first or you whatever it is, actually it is a form of a privilege that you inherited this idea. Maybe your parents could get better tutors. Maybe they sent you to better schools. You know, maybe you learned these things from parents as a child and other people could not because they were poor, uneducated, whatever. So this meritocracy got attacked. Uh, quite a lot of Marxists, both in the US and some in India joined in. You know, Indians always echo the Indian Marxist copy, you know. So this uh, then uh, the role of uh, Ajanta Subramaniam in this movement was to take this idea of anti-meritocracy thesis and apply it to IITs. So this has been going on for a while and, uh, and now what has happened is there are several other books I will show tomorrow. Somebody then somebody else attached a more recent book saying that uh, caste is racism. Caste is racism. So now you take this uh, idea that caste is a form of racism and so all these American laws against racism should be applied and if there is a law that says that large publicly traded companies should do a race census among management and among board to find out if there is a bias, racist bias, now they should do it for caste people also. So wherever there are Indians should do a census to find out who is what caste and uh, see and if there is an imbalance then that is racism. This kind of theory has come out. And then uh, uh, another person, uh, uh, you know, Equality Labs in New York, they took this idea uh, and said, let's take a case. And they filed a case in against Cisco uh, in Silicon Valley that they are casteist and hence racist. Cisco, of course, defended, you know. Uh, and then they went around, that, that created such a scare. Then they started attend, uh, giving workshops to Microsoft, to workshops to Facebook. I got calls and emails from so many Indians in these companies saying that we are being required by HR department to sit in workshops uh, and we are very embarrassed. But if anybody raises a question or disagrees, then they don't like it. They say you are a biased person. You are not acknowledging. You have to confess that you have uh, you are casteist uh, rather than saying, no, no, this theory is wrong and so on. So these people are, our people felt that we are being bullied almost. And we are, we've been told by HR department, just quietly sit and don't uh, argue. One of them sat in the briefing where Satya Nadella was there. And uh, this lady told me that he sat very quietly. It was two and a half hour briefing. He sat very quietly, didn't say a word. When it was over, he just quietly left. That's it. And that's what we all did. 
and then the hr department authorized that same workshop has to be done at lower levels every department so this is a sort of very systematic uh, uh, thing going on and um, some school some uh, school districts enacted these laws that uh, any prejudice on grounds of caste would be considered racism some counties county governments in california have enacted it harvard made it uh, fashion for universities i don't know if uh, georgetown has probably have might have but many of the major universities have enacted this kind of a law so now it means that our tech people are on the defensive you are suspect you know like you'll be considered similar to white supremacist because you're some you're not dalits and so now another thing is this uh, the dei officers diversity equity inclusion officers are being now trained by these people the equality lab people to be on the lookout for uh, this kind of uh, thing happening in their company so it is influencing the corporate world it is certainly putting our tech people on the defensive because there is also a proposal that h1b visa should be uh, there should be some kind of a caste question so when you go to the uh, us embassy in delhi to apply for a visa or, or whatever you know you asked now nowadays they are not asked this kind of question so uh, this is become serious matter and uh, this uh, the harvard is the center of this kind of wokeism it's the part of this wokeism going on and so another one another uh, part of the harvard role is uh, they have started uh, what is called the afro dalit alliance the they have started uh, some prominent african american scholars and some activists who are dalits uh, one suraj jengde in particular and many others they have come to harvard they've been brought to harvard and they've created this idea that the dalits are the blacks of india and uh, the non dalits are like the whites of india this is a racial society and now you can take the history of racism in america and superimpose it on india and understand indian society so this has become a kind of a fashion now the courses are being taught workshops are being taught seminars uh, this has been going on for quite a while so i figured that somebody has to at least open a debate we should, there needs to be a position from our side uh, so i wrote this book with my co-author and uh, the book was launched deliberately in india to create a you know tension a ground kind of traction traction i should say and we've got tremendous traction from the government from uh, uh, national security people uh, from people in uh, academia media various places and i'm going back in february to continue this because there are so many invitations we just could not do we just we did about 30 events uh, and also we got mainstream media coverage so there is a lot of uh, uh, noise being made a lot of people are very concerned about this <clears throat> now the this whole business has ramifications in the sense that us you might have seen sometimes in an article in washington post or wall street journal or new york times about this uh, Uh, lack of democracy in india and india is becoming a fascist country the, the rhetoric that jay shankar has to respond to you know he started responding to these kind of things saying this is all nonsense but actually if you look at where is this rhetoric coming from the journalists are not scholars they don't they're not dreaming this up they're quoting the scholars so i'm i'm able to show in my book that this is what suraj jengde wrote or this is what this one wrote uh, this one wrote in one of these ivy leaks and then soon after that within a few weeks the some article comes up and then indian government has to 
be on the defensive. So, but the point is, you have to go to the heart of the problem. You can't just respond to an article or a U.S. Uh, State Department policy. State Department policy is the result of think tanks, and these think tanks are also trained by such people, such scholars only. So the issue is deep, and so hence we decided that uh, this has to be, this has to be discussed, and we, uh, you know, that, that's how we uh, came up with this uh, whole thing. Now, um, the uh, this is one of many stories, many uh, types of uh, breaking India forces that are covered in this book. And you can, uh, another disappointment that we discovered is that a lot of Indian billionaires are actually funding these things. Why they are funding, we need to find out. But we will, in February, I'm going to go back. But Indian government is now going to start questioning also that why do they need to get Harvard, give them money, and get Harvard to study Indian uh, caste abuse or Indian abuse of uh, gender or Indian abuse of uh, whatever, you know. If they think there is minority abuse, whatever it is, India is a democracy, India has enough ability to take care of its situation. Why we need a danda from Harvard and they'll put it through some think tanks and this becomes part of the European Union thinking, World Economic Forum gets involved. Um, why are we taking all these issues internationally and why are our own people spending the money on it? So, uh, we have a separate chapters on some of the billionaires who are doing this kind of work. And a uh, lot of examples of what those centers are doing in their names. So, there is a Mahindra Humanities Center. Um, what are some of the outputs they are producing? We have looked at. Uh, there is a Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute. And so, what are some of the things they are doing? There is a Piramal Center for Public Health. You know, the you would think that public health is uh, discussing, you know, how to cure malaria or how to cure and how to solve this problem, how to solve cancer and all helping India. But when you look at the conference proceedings and the type of speakers, they are discussing things like uh, during COVID, did minorities get uh, equal treatment or was there, was, did they not uh, give enough vaccinations to Dalits? So there is always a social angle. Uh, looking at it like, uh, you know, India is not performing equally and democratically as if they're building evidence. You know, this is the sort of thing a lawyer would build evidence to make a case. So, I don't know why our people got involved, but they are certainly involved. And uh, I have been asked by uh, people in Delhi in the national security and other, these other kind of organizations, what should be done? And I've said, you know, what you should do is find out for yourself. You should bring these guys and ask them why are you funding it what is your goal are you aware or are you or is this being done without your knowledge if it is being done without your knowledge you should do due diligence because when you invest as a as a industrialist you always have due diligence so why would you invest in the, in the study of your own culture for, by a foreign country first of all why would you go there and not uh, have this investigation done within india but even if you are doing it uh, what is the goal of uh, having them come up with all this trash? Now, I've also studied here China, how they're funding Harvard. They're funding Harvard actually more. Until the last couple of years when the spotlight came on China as a suspicious country, you know, US is now very concerned that China is a suspicious country. One or two Harvard professors got thrown in jail, also got arrested by FBI because they were caught doing something. 
But prior to that, Harvard, I mean, Harvard was a very major investment place for Chinese. But Chinese put conditions that Indians didn't. Chinese, you know, when the Chinese investing, Harvard cannot talk about uh, in no conference, no uh, speaker will talk about the Tibet issue, the Uyghur issue, the Hong Kong issue. You know, this about whether China is democracy, whether there's human rights, whether there's social justice, because Chinese, both the government people and the industrialists who funded these things, make very clear that that is, for, that is our business, not your business. What Chinese want is STEM. They are saying we want to fund and get science, technology, engineering, computer science, AI, quantum computing, medicine, all these kind of things we want. But as far as the social sciences and humanities are concerned, that is not your business. We are, and the Chinese are not sending their students largely to study, you know, China, China's history and so, political thought. Like Indians are going to study Indian history at Ivy Leagues. They're studying Indian history at Ivy Leagues. And Sanskrit are Ivy Leagues. And some of these places quite distorted views, which I have written in several books. So we do not have a kind of a, a policy where the government and the industrialists who are philanthropists are coordinating. But I think things will change because now the government is realizing that this is a serious matter and it, it ought to be done. <clears throat> so just to close and then I'll like to discuss your thoughts. Uh, in this uh, 60 days, we built a lot of traction in India. And then Canada, Boston, we went to Bay Area and here. So in India, one of the places I went to was IIT Madras. I picked IIT Madras. We've had a lot of conferences, our foundation and IIT Madras. We've done over the last five, five ten years, we've done several joint conferences. And I know the speakers there. And the reason I picked it up is because in this book, a lot of the examples are cited from IIT Madras. But they're applied to all IITs. So I went there and I conducted a talk to the students. And had interaction, and uh, we ha we having that video will be coming out. Uh, the students are very surprised and very disappointed that uh, they are investing so much in the meritocracy. They believe in that they are there because of merit. They don't they don't think they are there because of family privilege or they don't think any of them got it because of that. That's what they are saying, and they feel quite disappointed that uh, in their career they are going to be considered like they are some kind of elitists and we are suppressing and oppressing. So then I went to talk to professors. Many of them didn't want to come on camera. They said, you are doing great work. support Moral support But we can't be seen, you know. So I said, you know, then I, I want to talk to those who have uh, who are willing to stand up and say something also. So finally, uh, we have this discussion on video. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Uh, it's a 45-50 minute very important for all of you to watch myself and three IIT professors discussing we go point by point what Ajanta Subramaniam says and what is their reality so Ajanta Subramaniam says X now what do you guys say and not only they falsify what she's saying the facts aren't there but actually the the the, the books all these books and papers that have been written against IIT don't have data there is, it is just hearsay. It is like one man gave this anecdotal experience. And so that becomes a very big story. But one man out of how many and what is the statistical facts? No statistic quoted in this. Not any statistic. So a lot of uh, solid rebuttal uh, is happening. My co-author and I are producing a 100-150 page book 
small book on this only this particular attack on IITs, not the rest of the book because it's a big book. But we are taking out the parts that are relevant to IIT, and we want to publish it. Uh, we'd like support for that because if we have a that small book, easy to read, then it can be read by a whole lot of uh, people, including IIT students themselves and the IITians. Uh, because if uh, the smear campaign, uh, now turning into legal issues also, uh, is going to implicate the brand value, then we, the counter arguments have to be with our people. What are they saying? Why are they saying it? What is their argument? What is our response? You know, so this is how we are developing uh, our uh, thesis. So I'll, uh, I'll uh, be, I, there's so much more to say, but I think I'll stop and uh, welcome your comments and your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Malhotra. First of all, I want to congratulate you on this tome, this big book. It looks big, but it's a well-researched book. I want to congratulate you on such a good job. I'm Ron Gupta. I'm president of NIIT USA. We represent over 50,000 IIT alumni in the US, and we reach out regularly to almost 500,000 IIT alumni globally. It's a vast number. What we are going to do, I'm committing to doing, is we will put this book on a website. We have a book corner. We will put this book. And I'm going to designate two of our board members to review it. I was born in a family with virtually no education. My mother never went to school. My father went to two grades of school. Come from a dirt poor family. The IITs started on 18th of August, 1951, when Dr. Maulana Abul Kalam Azad inaugurated it. And the very first motto of IIT was Yoga, Karmasu, Kaushalam. Kaushalam means excellence. Karma is work. Meaning excellence in work is your duty, is the yoga. That's all I want to say at this stage. My question is, what can I do on behalf of Pan IIT beyond what I've already stated? Thank you. That's a great question. So first of all, Thank you for welcoming me, inviting me, and thank you for your wonderful words and for putting together this uh, panel that will do reviews. I think your question is very important. What can you do? What you can do is in two capacities, your personal capacity and in the pan-IIT capacity. In your personal capacity, your story is a very important one 
because it defeats the it refutes the claim these people are making because you are an example you are an example of the kind of merit based success that these people don't want to admit you come from a humble background you didn't get in because of privilege you were not raised you didn't uh, get into iit and succeed because of some uh, you know parents and that kind of a thing it was not the equivalent of what they are calling white privilege then it is nothing like that so i think we need to collect counter counter stories like yours we need to collect stories of people who've come from all over because this is based on this is an anthropologist which means they collect stories this is not data this is not based on actual numbers but just stories here and there and if you are harvard you can make a case that this is truth you can make up the truth so we can give lots of case studies also so that's one as the uh, head of uh, pan iit in the us you are already doing something very good which is taking action and saying okay let's put a, a neutral review i would suggest that when the neutral review comes we should also have a panel discussion where i would like my co-author and i and the reviewers to have a discussion we should invite ajanta subramanian if they come or not is their problem but we should at least have said we invited them if they didn't come that's a different matter so this should happen and this should be out there and and with good moderator and it should be done uh, that will bring a lot of things out so whatever each party believes others have a right to question cross examine a lot of good things will come out and those videos and that evidence will be of value as uh, going forward you know beyond that what i would like is we need help i need a force to continue after me we need to bring in these young people they need to be paid they need to be looked after we need a think tank so i'm now developing a think tank which is where we are stretched for resources and nor did i think that uh, some of these books will require many more projects so this big book that you are seeing uh, there are several projects we've listed 11 projects and how much funding each one of them takes so for example we want to do this uh, 120 30 40 page book out of this only for iit case study we want to translate it into hindi we want to uh, make a documentaries on this uh, we want to spread it out give large number of copies to every tech student in india because when they are attacking iits they are actually attacking the whole tech industry they are picking the big name in order to go after this tech industry out of jealousy out of whatever agenda they might have so we have a we have a program to counter that uh, we also uh, want to uh, each of these copies is, a, is subsidized because the publisher said that the mrp has to be 2000 rupees because it's large and it's uh, imported paper and all these things so they said that uh, the cost of printing will be such that you have to have a mrp of 2000 we brought it down to 895 because and even that for students is high students prefer something even lower but it, we think that it's okay if, uh, we cannot bring it even lower so for every copy we're losing uh, you know money and we've already put out tens of thousands of copies so it's done very well in 60 days we've got three print runs sold out three three print runs <coughs> your any financial help would be wonderful your intellectual help uh, bringing and you know giving us a chance to uh, present our case and then people can decide i have we have no problem if people disagree that's fine we can give our side people can give their side and everybody can decide what they want to believe 
but at least it should be heard. And it hasn't been heard for so many years. Like the story is very old, quite a few years old. And we, we are happy we brought it out. So, you know, there are uh, several very targeted uh, examples in this big book of ours. One of them is that there is a whole uh, investment in India of tech, big data and tech, to create uh, AI-based, uh, you know, solutions at the grassroots. Almost a parallel government bypassing the real government. So the uh, people in the villages, the, uh, they'll, they'll, reach, they'll receive their government services through these networks, uh, which, uh, which will then collect all the data, how to influence them, how to modernize them, all of that. Uh, and some of, in some cases, they've got the government approval. In some cases, they're just quietly doing it. So we, there's a chapter 22 on that. So that's going to become a separate book also. Thank you. Because, you know, we want to target little, little books for different. One is for the IIT crowd. One is for the national security crowd, like that. One of the things that I saw throughout the first six chapters anyways, and then thumbed through the others, is that there is a total lack of statistical data on both sides of the equation, if you will. I, I also tried to go online to see Ajanta's writings and papers, etc. And again, <coughs> there is very little credible data that is, uh, there are a lot of anecdotal you know, information. So, so let me share three or four uh, anecdotal uh, truths about IIT. Just to introduce myself, I have, for those who <coughs> haven't met, I'm Suresh Shinoy. Uh, I have now lived here for 48 years and uh, came to USA in 1973. And uh, I have been very actively involved with Pan-IIT. I was president from 2006 through 8. And I'm also founder of an organization that has been spun off from IITs called Wheels Global Foundation, where I have a question on that because there is a reference without mentioning Wheels, where our creed is how to apply technology for rural transformation. And uh, it is not based on caste or anything, but it is based on a genuine belief that the only way to scale philanthropy is through application of technology. But I'll come to that later. But what I'd like to do is, first of all, share uh, three or four anecdotes with you. Okay which I have learned because I've been very active in the IIT strategic plans, et cetera. Number one, there is, may or may not be a little known fact that better than 50% of the students who come to IIT now are from the scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, reservation system. And so therefore, there is a, there is a genuine uh, thrust from the government as well as from the IIT administration to provide more opportunity for the uh, the you know uh, other backward classes etc to get an IIT education. Having said that, uh, the second anecdotal evidence is that the dropout rate amongst them is pretty high, because they don't have the fundamental you know uh, uh, high school education and STEM STEM education to support them through a highly challenging environment like IITs. So the dropout rate is high, and even the suicide rate among them is very high compared to others. Again, this is anecdotal, and that's, that's why I'm going to come up with a recommendation for you. The third one is that uh, there is a tendency amongst uh, the, the faculty to pad grades. In other words, there is a story which you may hear about tomorrow 
where in a particular high school here, which has converted it to Thomas Jefferson High School, which is similar to IIT's, uh, has made it into a, just as of this year, they have gotten rid of the joint entrance exam for Thomas Jefferson, and uh, they are doing uh, admissions based on some subjective criteria with a quota system from different high schools. Uh, the point here is that, that there is some allegation <coughs> that the teachers are being pressurized by the uh, school board and others to pad their grades. So it doesn't look like the grades are going down because of the quota system. Similarly, in the IITs, there is some talk, again it's anecdotal, so don't quote me on it, that there is some pressure to ease off on the grading system and ease off on the rigor of the STEM education in IITs so that it doesn't look like the reservation system is impacting the standards. Mm. So having said that, uh, <coughs> my, my question to you and a suggestion is that as long as you are writing a book on IITs, can you make it very statistically accurate, that if you took the time to poll all the IITs to find out the truth, is 50% of the, are 50% of the students actually coming through the reservation system? Because I don't think there is so many data to, to uh, indicate that. To find out the actual dropout rate amongst the students, to see if the suicide rates have changed, and if there is some credible statistical evidence irrefutable, then I think it adds a lot more credibility to everything that we say here uh, as being, you know, something that needs to be looked at. So just, just a thought. Yeah, that's a, those are good re future research <coughs> issues to uh, do some further investigation along those lines. Absolutely good ideas. Thank you. You know, uh, Pradeep ji and I just came back from a fairly long trip to India where we went to several villages where we are actively you know, working with schools and colleges and uh, local farmers, etc. Uh, the question of caste never came up anywhere, if I may say so. Never came up. Uh, and the optimism that we saw in the eyes of the children there was very uplifting. They all wanted to do better in life. And uh, if we brought up the subject of wokeism, most of them wouldn't even know what we are talking about. And I'm not just talking about the villages, even in the urban areas, there is tremendous amount of optimism. And uh, I, I also thumb through the following chapters, uh, beyond, beyond chapter six, and towards the end you make an excellent point that when you look at the Indian Puranas and the Indian Ramayana, the scriptures, etc., the question of caste is not highlighted anywhere. In fact, the, in, in, your, in your own analysis, you know, the, the whole notion of casteism comes in the post-colonial era. So in that sense, just a comment and perhaps you can, you, you can address that, the efforts to get rid of casteism that Ajanta and others are, you know, advocating would take us back to our Hindu roots. So do you have any comment on that aspect of it? I mean, taking the positive, you know, side of it, if you will. You see, uh, chapter 6, which is 100 pages, is on the history of Indian social structure. From Varna to Jati to caste. From early Vedas to today. Seven phases of history. I've divided history into seven phases. 
and why the society changed, what changed, Islamic invasion changed, social structure, then British invasion changed, then, then independence. So the so social structure has been changing over time. It is not fixed. And it's also been different in different regions of India. So there may be caste bias in some places and not in other places. That is for sure. So this, regarding this uh, uh, the attack from the West, it is not just one person. This one person has picked on IITs and, ha and brought the whole Harvard gang into this picture. But the, this attack on casteism is a very deep-rooted in the church, all the do church documents. You look at the U.S. State Department. You, if you have kids who go to school, uh, if there is a... Uh, class being, being taught on India day one they'll start talking about caste system our teacher our students uh, tell you that uh, this is what they are facing uh, this morning I was in uh, Sanskrit Bharati giving a, t a talk and uh, a gentleman there said what is the wh what to do my kids go in the ninth grade and the first day of uh, the class on India the talking is about caste and she doesn't know what to answer so the fact is that th this has become the the hammer with which to beat up India this has become the uh, one of the many of few. There are a few issues like this, but this is one of the main ones. And then this business about gender bias and minority. All these are the fault lines that are being used to uh, attack India. So whether it is true or not, whether it is our experience is not what they want to worry about. They have their agenda. So uh, the idea is to counter what the discourse is about, which is causing problems for us. And it, this problem is going to get worse. If we, if we just leave it alone on the assumption that we have we are 5,000 years old, we have this soft power, and Indian diaspora will save us, and uh, when we go to the villages, there's no problem, so hence why do we want to worry? Uh, my, I, let me just tell you, the problem is getting worse. In terms of what the, uh, the breaking India forces are up to, that's what they're up to. No, I agree with you. In fact, uh, in preparation for today's conversation, I talked to quite a few people on the West Coast. Uh, to learn more about the Cisco case, for example. And uh, the question was, uh, you know, uh, there obviously needs to be more education of uh, the, the common man, if you will, common person, uh, on what is Hinduism really all about? And, you know, is there real caste, you know, discrimination? So someone like you would make a phenomenal expert witness to sort of educate and be a, uh, an expert witness on saying that this is not uh, standard practice and that might help because otherwise the a lot of the companies on the west coast are running scared because of what the state government has adopted what the ca case is go which way the case is leaning and so on and so forth so you will get a public forum to talk about what the reality is yeah so you know obviously that is exactly what my fight is that uh, i want to give a counter view to the established but let me tell you do not underestimate the power and the, the depth of our opponents. When there was this di Dismantling Hindutva conference, I don't know how many of you heard about it, but there was a conference last year called Dismantling Hindutva. Two or 300 American universities signed up for it. Not a joke. 
and not uh, not in the not and in some cases the individual professors signed up in their personal capacity but could not bring the university officially but in some cases the university officially i, I wouldn't be surprised if george george town was one of those and certainly george washington i think was where they used the university name the university logo university officials and they signed up for it so you know we can keep saying that uh, we are we have all these great things going on but the fact of the matter is these assaults are getting worse they are not getting any better they are getting worse and because the other side is highly organized they have a game plan and they are not into anecdotal or feeling good and we are not we are great and all that they are into a, a war path i mean this is a, they have a algorithm there is an algorithm for moving forward and they are carrying out that algorithm we don't have an algorithm this book started as a toolkit and somebody people told me why don't you diagnose what are the biggest threats we are facing and how to counter them so i came up with all these chapters and different examples as a toolkit to educate our people and one of the things we'll do in february when we go to india is we're going to hold workshops uh, the there are several institutions that want us to hold workshops they'll bring in a large number of people and we, our job is to train them how to use this material to counter uh, whatever the discourse we are facing but let me tell you these people who are against us this list of people who signed for the anti hindutva is public and then they had a conference uh, where we we sent our people to register and videos we have copies of videos the whole thing they later deleted it but we have copies of the videos in which somebody asked uh, okay you are anti hindutva what about hinduism is there a difference they said no 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 we are anti hindu hinduism also part of it so there is a very serious matter and uh, you'll find hardly a university which was not listed in in the in the people who supported and quite openly there's no see if you were to create a counter to that the way to find out your to test your hypothesis and your tech, technical people you always want to test test your hypothesis i would say organize try to organize something here in your neighborhood in uh, georgetown Uh, where you sell, tell them that uh, we are going to organize a conference on uh, indian uh, social structure uh, response to the allegations of caste because you believe in it the villagers in india support you uh, the texts support you we have a 100 page article also try doing that you will find that uh, many of the universities will cancel it they will not even allow the discussion this is true this is called cancel culture i have been cancelled for 30 years because i say all these things and i know this as a fact so some of them will allow it but the the powers to be won't show up they they will just give you the hall and you just run your show you are talking to each other but they are not part of it so even getting a conversation with the established order and that established order is highly anti india and anti hindu is not an easy thing to do and the best way to find out is try it you can keep imagining based on theories and what you've read and talked to and all that to people but try and i really would like in 2023 please organize in george georgetown university a a conference which is pro india pro hindu on the issue of caste on the issue of gender on the issue of minorities and try to see if you get through i would love to come for this uh, my you know uh, discussions with a lot of people here and this point has emerged that if we sort of uh, take out india from this discussion it makes our a standpoint much stronger so if we use the word hindu as hindus you are americans and 
as you bring in the lexicon of india it becomes like uh, divided loyalties that are you still you know dreaming about india all the time so we should completely sort of try to minimize the word india and just say as hindus uh primarily as hindus as americans <coughs> that is our right to speak up so so uh, yes but let me just respond to that also uh, first of all two parts to the response first it will not change the anti hindu rhetoric it, the anti hindu rhetoric from the church from the sec- leftists is there whether you are in india or anywhere else there it is anti hindu and and this is just because you withdraw from the india doesn't mean that uh, they will suddenly start loving hindu my point is totally different i am saying that if i go to a place where i declare the topic as india and etc etc then my capacity to defend this point becomes less whereas if i focus primarily on hindu and hindus in america and american hindus then my capacity to defend this subject becomes a lot more potent i heard this yeah. i acknowledge it and i am saying that even after decoupling india and removing india from the entire discourse strictly a defense of hinduism is not going to be that easy even after that is what i'm saying i, I even after that it is not going no i'm not sure i'm not sure let me come to it i'm not sure that a defense of hinduism you see you have to go to you have to go to american academy of religion which has a meeting every year and they talk about religions of the world 12000 people show up 12000 scholars of the world study religion in, in okay and and they have a every, they have a group on uh, hinduism buddhism christianity judaism every religion then they have on religion and lgbtq group religion and blacks religion and minorities religion and women religion and economics all kind of topics combining religion with different things even religion and uh, ai there is that also okay so you go there there is nothing about india that is just religions you will see you will see how hinduism is being treated and it is nothing to do with india you will see some of the books that i've written one is called the battle for sanskrit which is a critique of how sanskrit is being studied in this country that is nothing to do with india it is taking the sanskrit shastra and looking for abuse in it looking for gender abuse that ram was a gender abuser okay looking for abuse against minorities as built into the shastra and in fact built into the sanskrit grammar also this is nothing to do with india at all this is to do with sanskrit with shastra with hinduism this is very true so and 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 the, and the other thing is uh, the, uh, and and when our kids face bias when somebody says uh, you know what caste are you or why your breath is dot or you are idol worshippers or you monkey you worship monkeys it is not about india at all it is that you are a hindu and this is a issue so the, so let's not let's not uh, feel that let's not uh, simplify the problem and saying okay if we dump dump india will be okay it will not be okay second part of my answer is there are irish americans there are italian americans they have in new york an irish american parade they have an italian day parade there are hispanic americans there are jewish americans who are pro israel there are so there is they are not shy of a hyphenated identity they are all christians by the way all of the jews are the jews but all the others irish american you know every european ethnic group has an annual parade uh, in new york big parade 
and they are so proud of their heritage. Why is it that Indians should decouple with India when Irish are not decoupling as Irish, Italians are not decoupling, Israelis are not decoupling, why are we supposed to decouple? It's a complex of that, hey, you know, I'm in trouble if I dump this, then I'll be okay. But I will dump it, but I'll not be okay. I'll just be weaker because I'll have, dis uh, I'll have partitioned myself away from the motherland. So that's my, I would, I would advise that you try, everything should be tried, tested. We believe in testing, right? So you test it. You, you put a test case at Georgetown University where you do not mention anything about India. Let's take this gentleman's idea, suggestion. We are talking about Hinduism and we are refuting the caste system and we are refuting the, the, that it abuses women and abuses Dalits. And we want to do a, th a, a seminar on that at Georgetown University and we want to have the university allow us to do it and opponents can come also. We are not forcing anything on anybody. Tell me, I would love to know if you are successful because we have not been successful in getting this into the academic system. Hindu Student Council will do it in the evening, rent a hall, students will come. It is not part of the official curriculum and that's allowed. You can do anything, you can book a hall like you can book this restaurant, you can book a hall at Princeton University and do anything you want. But the university has nothing to do with it. They'll just walk, say, okay, these guys, whoever they are, whatever they're doing, I have nothing to do with. But an official university event, just like they have all these other official events, try and get one. For 30 years, we've not been able to. It's very so, difficult. My foundation, which had been funding uh, Indology in Harvard and various places, we decided to withdraw because we thought the money is being misused. So we withdrew. I've already been down that route and decided that I'll close. We drew it. And for a few years, there was a vacuum. And then the Harvard with the, uh, Amartya Sen, uh, Sugata Bose, and Homi Baba, who is now center for uh, head of the Mahindra Center. These three were sent on a tour of India to get support from Indian industrialists. This is before 2010, between 2005 and 2010. So I remember the, the, that in situation that they went doing this and they, they tried to make it look like this will be good for you. India is globalizing and part of the global influence. You are big industrialist. You know, you should have your imprint so that the more we study India, the better it will be for investments, the more tourism will come. So they, that is how that whole thing happened. And it is, not, uh, it is not an easy thing for them to, for these guys to back out of. I sat in um, Ananda Mahindra's office in his headquarters in Mumbai. I went there because Guru Murthy introduced me. I told Guru Murthy ji, I'm very concerned that Harvard is going around to these people trying to get money out of them and I'm concerned they might give the money. And he says, you have a very valid point. Please give this PowerPoint presentation to Mahindra and I will set you up with Mahindra. He called Anand Mahindra, set me up. I went and had lunch in his office, in Anand Mahindra's office. I gave him the whole presentation and he heard it. He was a very decent, very polite guy. I mentioned it in this book. And he was, uh, but he said, he have not committed, I'm thinking, uh, but Sugata Bose, he knew Sugata Bose, was very fond of Sugata Bose somehow. And he said, but you know, we'll think about it. He didn't want to commit anything to me, but he ended up giving money. Uh, Lakshmi Mittal, very patriotic, very pro-Hindu. Uh, I've met him in some of these uh, RSS uh, meetings and gatherings in Trinidad and so forth, but he gave $50 million. Okay, so this is going on. Uh, to some extent, these guys get uh, sort of a publicity as a global thinker. Maybe they get their kids into Harvard. Maybe they get uh, into various committees and prestigious uh, boards. Pre prestigious boards is something that people want and they get in there. 
or maybe they are ideologically also convinced i don't know which of these is true but something brings brings them into this circle i'd like to bring this to an end and taking it away from hinduism the attack on anything we can rebut but that's not enough you have to then start your own yes positive spin yes and the one thing i like to mention about iits is the new national education policy that was passed 2 years ago permitted iits to go outside india and set up new iits there are seven iits that are being set up this year alone in malaysia in dubai and even one in the united kingdom and so we have to take the positive side of it you can rebut as much as you want but then you got to come back with your own spin thank you very much i think uh, so i i i've also been very active with the local you know uh, uh, community here for many years and uh, as i mentioned earlier there's a school here called thomas jefferson high school for science and technology it was an experiment i think bill gates had something to do with microsoft uh, no no microsoft was not involved but this was done yeah it's a public health high school which was uh, actually which came into existence in i think 1985 or so 86 or 85 so so just to give you Uh, some high level data if i if you don't mind uh, my son graduated from there in 1998 at which time less than 10% of the students or 15% of the students were of asian origin today it's more like 80% of the students are of asian origin chinese koreans indians and as a result there has been some backlash uh so as i mentioned earlier last year's election was heavily based on you know uh, a discussion and a dialogue about eliminating the joint yes, <laughs> yeah so uh, so last year's elections uh, 2021 elections were uh, heavily uh, you know uh, centered around education particularly stem education not only in uh, in fairfax county but in loudon county and other places and consequently the democrats lost the election okay to to uh, essentially someone who came out of the woodworks uh, youngkin as a republican and uh, that was a big wake you know uh, awakening call if you will wake up call to people saying that look people here are really serious about education but having said that the the uh, the school board went ahead and canceled the joint entrance exam and adopted a, a selection process based on quotas and the net result was that the number of indian students and asian students has gone down you know in some proportion and around the same time harvard and yale also adopted a cap on the number of asian students that can join the university there is a supreme court case now right yeah. there is a case so uh, uh, and uh, you know uh, manish here just prompted me to sort of uh, relate my experience going back to 2000 2001 because this has been going on for a long time and uh, i can tell you what what happened is a short story so please bear with me we there was a some there was some the thomas jefferson high school was created by creating a fund called the fairfax county education fund i think right and that was supported by local industry saying that 
to make our region uh, attract high technology companies, we need a school that focuses on STEM education. And Thomas Jefferson came about. It went on to become the country's number one high school, the best school, and uh, amazing students. And uh, then after about five or six years, that Fairfax County Education Fund uh, sort of deteriorated because of the kind of dialogue we are having here. And they said that the joint entrance exam was heavily biased towards people who had the opportunity to get coaching and get into the school system. And they felt that, that their uh, money would be better spent on uh, uh, high schools that are from economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. So the focus of the education fund went away and Thomas Jefferson started going into a deficit in terms of financing. So in about 1998 or 99, I was one of the founding members of what is now called the Jefferson Partnership Fund, where we started raising money specifically going back to the basic principles of a meritocracy. And uh, that fund has flourished. However, in the recent past, that fund has also changed its color, saying that it's not equitable and that their focus is going to turn away from meritocracy to this, you know, so it fe I feel like we have come a full circle again. And uh, there was one time when um, the number of girls in the s school were very, very few, less than 5% or whatever it was. That's when my son was there. And uh, so at, at the same time, there was a new principal who had to come in. And I was part of the, uh, the board that selected the, the, the replacement principal, who happened to be a retiring principal from another high school. And she felt it that she was compelled to change the, or tweak the joint entrance exam for the uh, Thomas Jefferson so that they could tell the gender of the person. Otherwise it was double blind. They didn't know whether you were Indian, Korean, white, they didn't know. But they tweaked it so that there would be one digit that could identify a person as a female or a male. And that way the number of girls got up significantly, okay? So when that happened, the Hispanic community said, if you can do it for girls, you can do it for the Hispanics, and you can also do it for the blacks. And I actually remember even testifying before the school board, saying that you know, this, this brings down the whole system, that you know, we should be gender neutral, race neutral, blah, blah, it should be purely based on, of course I lost that uh, argument. And uh, they started tweaking the system to a point where they tried to get more Native Americans and more blacks and more you know, gender, uh, what do you call, not just female, but LGBTQ community and so on. So th the whole system was diluted. So now we are at a point where we are, we understand again anecdotally that the grades are being padded to show that these actions did not bring the total system down. Uh, th that's just a background and I, I see that happening at the IITs as well. Yeah. Thank you. So just to close, the, because we want to close, uh, final point because of uh, what everybody said. I will be glad to send you a list of who are the top opponents so that you know these are the opponents and then you can organize an event, neutral, open event to respond to them, invite them also. So one would be people who are in the Afro-Dalit movement in the Ivy Leagues who are saying that Dalits are blacks. That's a very big movement. Second is the whole caste 
is the big nuisance of India and it is a human rights nightmare and social justice is not happening and we the Americans have to fix it. I'll tell you who are the top few scholars in the academy. Then I will tell you this whole minority business that uh, we are oppressing minorities and things of that sort and the meritocracy. There are a few scholars who are at the who are the prominent scholars with a long career of writing about against meritocracy as a the calling meritocracy a human rights problem that this whole meritocracy is a human rights problem and so if i gave you a list of these in these areas uh, the, the most prominent and powerful and influential scholars who are working in these big universities then i would i would invite and we can work with you together on this you organize an event inside a university where we are going to be able to invite them and also present our point of view. It is virtually impossible to do that. That is the situation we are facing. We can talk about how much soft power we have, we are great from thousands of years, all that. But today where the Kurukshetra is, the battlefield is, we do not have much standing there because the institutions are controlled by certain people. This is in fact the case. I think we all agree that as IITians, we can be called Indian Americans and not Hindu Americans. Is that correct, Ron? So we have to, yeah. So we have to just go with Indian American, you know. And they could be Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jews, everything. That's one. The second thing I wanted to add, which Suresh just mentioned about the TJ Partnership Fund, and it kind of resonated in my mind because a lot of people they got used to writing checks when Suresh made the effort. You know, he went to people that this is for merit. So they are still writing the same checks, $100,000, maybe some big foundation. They don't even know. It goes out every year. And now the same fund is being used in a different direction. It's use, being used against meritocracy in TJ. So I, was, I have a question for you. You think the same thing is happening with the Mahindra Foundation or with uh, Lakshmi Mittal or with uh, you know, other... See, I wish that were the case. But Mahindra and his, uh, Anand Mahindra and some of his relatives, they come once a year uh, to Harvard, they're felicitated, they have photo ops, and they visit their center, and so they know what's going on. I mean, if an industrialist is investing his money and doesn't know what's going on, that's really not very good. He, he needs to get uh, somebody to do due diligence. More than the money is their name. What I've told them is that these guys with a business card saying Director Mahindra Center or Director Mittal Center are going around doing these things in your name. Are you aware of it? Are you behind it? Because your name is being used. See, so far nobody had called it. So this book is the beginning of we are calling it. I'm not saying I'm right, but we should talk about it. And we brought it right up to the highest level in India. And they, will, they are taking notice of this. So there will be now some new discussions and you know, imagine 10, 12, 15 years have gone by with these kind of trends happening, but we, nobody has even called it. So at least we should talk about it. So when I'm trying to like organize this event, when I'm talking to people, so what is really happening? Say we have a lot of Indian, as Pradeepji said, there's a lot of like successful Indian different profession and a lot of people are sitting on the sideline. But problem is the issue is so complex. If you tell them Anand Bahindra is a financing a, like a fund, a program in Harvard which is going against India, nobody wants to believe. And what we, we are discussing a lot of very critical topic and this is going to take long. But what I want to first thing, whenever we are creating a narrative, I want this narrative to be transferred to the common people in much more simplified way. 
they should relate what is happening and they need to relate what is coming for the next generation these people don't listen unless there is impact on in their life so, so so just to give you the example for anand mahindra hmm. my co-author vijaya has put out two minute videos two minute videos yeah. uh, on uh, our uh, uh, channel our uh, twitter channel and i can send you these series of videos i've seen that yeah. on mahindra yeah quoting what the mahindra guy is saying the mahindra guy said this 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 in the hindu or in the indian express or whatever it was this is what he said that this is what he said that this is what he said so these are not big that's not you don't need to read hundreds of pages it's a two minute videos three or no, four no, of them. i completely agree with that rajesh <coughs> what i'm trying to say we so in order to make a point with a common audience maybe we need to simplify and we need to like maybe as some different medium we need to think on the strategy i don't have a solution for that but what i'm trying to share my frustration people do not want even look at that issues they want to see there, there is always fashion with new york times wall street journal harvard university first there has to be effort to like uh, in some way for example right now they attack iit in fact they did like mess up by attacking iit because now we are going to get involved and they are going to see the impact in the long run so there has to be a lot of people see iit is just one example now we are dealing with so many people millions and people and are successful indian somehow they need to be shown your generation your you are part of this stake you are the the person the, the entity they are targeting it's not like a hindutva it's it, it's not any theoretical it's you individual who are going to get impacted right. and these messages has to go uh, across and then only when they realize uh, the kid they are taking for swimming class kid they are taking for these tj classes or other universities admission if they knows there is a like a, even after going through this process that their kid and generation is not going to be successful there will be significant impact in their like views so we need to somehow show them like uh, it's a it's a kind of like parda rata hai na it is a like glamour in front of them we need to uh, open that parda because we have seen this battle uh, you've seen this battle being fought um for 10 15 years is there anybody because this battle is not i mean we're talking about the india angle here but this battle really is it being waged across the world and across every community we've been divided in, in on various fronts india being being you know hindu is the angle for india no the, this the is the question very, i have yeah this so what you are saying is is this attack uh global against uh, everybody and the answer is yes in fact uh, before starting to write this book i was writing a book called breaking america is breaking america that would be very apt yeah and, and we have i have happened, a 300 page thing written and i might turn it down so then i was writing breaking america about how these things like you mentioned that is part of breaking america you breaking the meritocracy and this whole wokeism to break the meritocracy system and cancel culture those the people you don't like won't be allowed to speak because they have no right to speak they are oppressors marxism says that the world consists of oppressors and oppressed oppressors should not have any rights they should be cancelled oppressed people they don't have to prove anything with logic because their experience is what matters their experience of pain has to be heard so this is a very strange kind of a thing that has infected america now because america is not marxist at all but through this whole critical race theory it has become so this breaking america is uh, actually a lot of american supporting me now Absolutely. one of the people who wrote the forward is a peter bogosian is a well known american professor and he's taking me to other people we are going to make this movement with white americans they are also very concerned about it okay. absolutely in the process of writing this 
I came across as a movement like this in Japan, but the Japanese government kicked them out. Singapore, they came, the wokists came and said that we want to, they started teaching courses. They had a collaboration with Yale, Singapore University, National University of Singapore. And they cancelled it. The Ministry of Education cancelled it after the Yale people put out a course which talked about biases for or against the Chinese ethnic versus this ethnic. And he said, we don't have this problem. We don't want you to bring this problem to us. You have this problem and you're putting it on us. So he actually, it was a 10-year term to be renewed and he convinced the parliament not to renew it. So Singapore cancelled this. They also have this in France. So President Macron, I have quoted him in this book somewhere, but we have a full chapter on it in the other book we haven't published. Where President Macron says, very important point, he says that the French idea of liberty is individual and not at the level of identity. So there is no such thing as Muslim rights. Every Muslim as an individual has the same rights as everybody else. So if you are a Muslim in France, you will have the same rights as any non-Muslim will have. A white guy, a colored guy, male, female, everybody will have the same rights as an individual. But if you come to me as a collective and saying we Muslims have these special needs, that is not allowed because that is against the whole, whole principle of Fr French. The French Revolution was on this individual liberty. So you know there is a pushback against wokeism from at least half a dozen countries we've written. Hungary is another one, Britain is another one. What is happening in, in Europe, this whole wave against the left is this only. Because they feel that too, it has gone too far and it needs to be corrected. So there is the, a lot of the current politics is based on this wokeism, anti-wokeism. So, you know, really good points. Um, really, I think ultimately to me, this really comes down to it's a war for or against, you can look at it either way, it's a war for the human mind. That's really what we're talking about yes. here. It really comes down to that. It's individualism versus collectivism. It's exactly. identity politics versus individualism. See, Absolutely. the idea of meritocracy says that if this gentleman as an individual, doesn't matter his parents, whatever, if he's good, he's good. Okay, the other side says that he belongs to this group, yeah, and therefore he's he's uh, he's a he's got oppressor. He's got these privileges. He might say, as an individual, I don't have any such uh, privileges. He says, no, no, no. But you belong to the wrong group. So it becomes identity politics. But the the thing that you know that's interesting about this idea of um, imposing uh, these things that the individual doesn't belong to, but somehow they're imposing it on the individual. Fact of the matter is, the masses tend to buy it. That's the long story short. I mean, yeah. it's really so, it comes down to the. Yeah. So, so, so just to complete this, actually, I'm very glad you're pushing this into more detail. You see, Marxism says that there are structures that have to be dismantled. Yeah. And it is not the individual. You belong to a certain part, a structure of privilege, and the other guy is a, a, a structure of the oppressed. And so the structures of privilege which they want to dismantle include family. Do you know, in Harvard, Suraj Yangde is giving conferences and seminars, we've quoted, uh, where he's saying that, Indi telling Indian students, you should revolt against your parents and your family because the Hindu family structure is abusive. It perpetuates abuse from generation to generation. You know, so, I so dismantling country, nation, nation state, because nation states give have power. Okay, N dismantling religions. It's not only uh, Hinduism facing this, Christianity facing it, by the way. I think okay. this is also but prevalent within the court system in this country. In this country. But Christianity, but, but Christianity. 
yeah, yeah. But, so my question but, to you but was, Christianity understands the game and they have a, rebut they have a response. So if I may ask the question, uh, <laughs> the question was, is there anybody in all these groups across the world that has that we've seen successful in fighting this this war? Yes, I think that uh, Japanese banned it. Basically, they just made a government policy. They will not allow this American liberal arts. Chinese, we don't, we know that they will do it anyway, but for other reasons. But they did not allow wokeism into China. You know, in China, the TikTok uh, content is very different than what is exported. You know that. You know. So Chinese want to export this modernization. They are exporting the modernization, but it is not meant for their own people. It's very clever people. And then Israel has, Israel is one of the half dozen countries we featured where this wokeism came and they tried to do this divisiveness on identity politics and they were asked to leave. So some countries have had the courage to stand up. India has not. India has not had the courage to stand up and say, we want to, we want to get rid of all this. In fact, the NEP 2020, I have a different take on it. The NEP 2020 opens the door for liberal arts. But liberal arts, not the Vedic liberal arts, the liberal arts, the leftist global liberal arts. So what has happened is you go to IIT Madras, you go to IIT Delhi now, and you look at who are the people teaching humanities, who are the people teaching human rights, who are the people teaching gender. They are not the kind of people who are aligned with Hinduism or anything like that. They are people who are actually completely on the other side and quite radically so. So the NEP 2020 did not qualify what kind of liberal arts should be brought in. They just said liberal arts should be brought in and the door was open and those guys are so organized, they just came in. That's what's happened. I'm Mohinder Gulati. I worked as Chief Operating Officer in a United Nations organization called Sustainable Energy for All. And I was also advisor at the World Bank. I worked around the world in many, many countries. The problem that you're raising is actually spreading faster than we think. I was at the World Bank and there was a training program started by Equality Labs, Sundar Rajan. She came to do this training program. And the training program is a six part. There are six, six sessions on race and caste. I saw that, I was alarmed and I said, what's going on at the World Bank? So when I, I signed up, looked into the contents and I was immediately alarmed that they are going to bring in this issue of caste, which doesn't exist in the bank. So I immediately wrote to the vice president who was in charge of this program. He happened to be an old friend. So I wrote it to him, which was discrimination. And I said, if you're looking at the discrimination as a determinant of development, then why discrimination only on race and caste? If discrimination as a determinant of development is what is your concern, why just race and caste? Then I wrote about all, um, and, and I, I sent it to all the executive directors of the bank, which is basically the board of the bank. And I said, if you're talking about discrimination, how about Uyghurs in China? How about the minorities, Hindu and Christian minorities in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, Aborigines in uh, Australia, Maoris in? Kafirs in the Muslim countries the, um, the uh, Maoris in New Zealand, indigenous people in Canada, natives here. I said, if you're looking at that, then you have to look at all of these discrimination uh, determinants. But is this training program uh, focused inwards on the bank that look at these issues in the bank as to how it is affecting our internal functioning or HR policies? 
or are these for imposing conditions on our borrowers? So I said, what exactly is your purpose? What's the objective? If it is for the imposing conditions on the countries, and this will be only the developing countries, not the part one countries, which is the developed countries. In that case, have you discussed this with the client countries? That this is what we're discussing, should be discussed in the board before you start training the staff. If it is internal, then where is the evidence that this is an issue? Just because you want to talk about the race due to the Black Lives Matter, the uh, president of the bank wants to prove to the Democrats that he's, he's, he's in favor of this issue. So he would, you're creating this bogey, you're creating this straw man. So I sent it to all the executive directors. Immediately there were alarm bells. Chinese immediately got into action. So in the very first program, China, Chinese ED sent a senior advisor in the, in the, in the training program. Indians, no reaction. Absolutely no reaction. Even from the other Indian staff, no reaction. So there is this reticence, there is a diffidence, there is this fear, there is a lack of courage that you don't want to stand up and fight for it and say this is actually wrong. So therefore, be aware that this is something which is spreading much faster than, than we imagine. Now I come to the other issue which should... The outcome of that was that in each training program, in each session, I went there, I kept hammering about this religious freedom and the religious discrimination. No, no, program cannot be canceled like that. It was not canceled, but because of that pushback, uh, and I, I gave them the documents, I gave them the references to the reports, so Faranaz Ispahani's report on minorities in Pakistan. I said, here are these reports. So because of that pushback, the tone and tenor of the training program changed. You said about the political, the capital, the civilizational capital that India has. Wherever you go, you are you are, you you are uh, you know admired for your or civil ancient uh, civilization, uh, and also the diversity that we have and how we manage this diversity in the context of the poverty that we have, and in the context of the colonized institution which are still colonized and weak capacity. So weak capacity poverty. Uh, and and uh, the the, um, the the huge diversity which no other country has, and still our democracy functions. So when I talk to these ministers and I talk to these my counterparts in these countries, they ask that question. It's very they're very curious, and we have our standard answers. So we we do that, but that capital is very eroding very fast, and that brings me to what we are doing here. The two the three issues which you have pointed out which is the minorities, caste, and the gender. Minorities and gender we can deal with a little more easily. The issue of the caste is like we are like deer in the headlights. Yes. The moment somebody raises the issue of caste, we just go into our shell because we, one, the issue is very nuanced. Two, it is a huge human rights issue. Three, that there is this old, uh, and it's, it's true. I mean, I've worked in India for 40 years. Uh, so I, I know I've worked in the villages as well. Issue of caste is a real issue in India. There is no denying the fact. In spite of us saying that some people are taking benefit, there is a creamy layer, there, is a, there are these scheduled caste atrocities prevention act, which is actually horrible. No, no country or no constitution should allow something like that. With all those aberrations, Caste is a very major problem. It's a social status problem, social stigma that is attached to it. It's not only the economic empowerment. 
So we, what we don't have is you don't have enough content, enough material, which has, which is evidence-based, statistically proven, statistically robust to say, don't go by this anecdotal evidence, which is what the sociologists will do. Here is the statistics. That's number one. Second, here in, in the US, we have these faculties, academia, media, which is you know, all stacked up, as has been pointed out. Bigger problem that we have is our children. Their window into these issues, our children's window into these issues is twofold. One is their school and other is the media. All of them read Washington Post, New York Times. Uh, this is what they read. And they go to the school and that's what they're taught. So we have to be less worried about what XYZ provost in, the, in, the, in a university says because they are deracinated. They're coming from that deracinated mindset of that education from through which we went. It is our children. Don't assume. Don't assume that if you put the facts in front of them, that these parents will be worried about the loss of identity. No, they are not worried about the deracination of their identity. These children will assume a different identity. You think you want to protect the identity that you have? They are not going to protect that identity. They are very happy with the new identity. Our young children are very happy with the new identity. So what is the content that we have to put in front of them? What is the medium that you have through which you can deliver that content? And those are the two questions that I think we all sitting here, that is an existential question, that's a civilizational question, and that's a question we have to consider. This is, this is the, I 100% resonate with what you're saying. 100% resonate with what you're saying. I think it's easy to talk about, you know, how great we are and we'll be fine. You know, things are pretty bad. I mean, we've mentioned, we've written this big book to prove, document, example after example, what's happening. The one thing I will tell you, the role of the universities we looked at, where does it all come from? School curricula are fixed by the universities. Most of the uh, people who write textbooks are university professors. Most of the media people go to, you know, uh, this uh, Pulitzer uh, School of Journalism or Newman School at Harvard and they get these kind of things and they, uh, they learn this ideology. So what starts in the uh, academics gets its, uh, goes to think tanks, Brookings and all these think tanks, goes to the government. State Department, all that. It goes into church seminaries. It goes into schools through the curriculum. It goes into media. So all the different areas of uh, American universities are quite powerful in in the social sciences in influencing ideologies in all segments of society. This is not a short-term solution, but I still want to emphasize basically uh, many times people don't relate unless they see the real risk coming to them. And uh, Indians are very risk adverse. They never, unless they are, the problem is hanging on their head, they will not act. So we need to end a lot of time. Uh, when we go on step by step, they come to our side. Many times it's a slow transition. But it has to be like they have to relate to the cause and issue as they move forward. And one of the ways is to say them, we need to prove somehow keeping quiet is not a solution. It's never a solution. Taking a cowardice approach is never a solution and we don't need to prove in a rough way. I generally say very straightforward, but there has to be a methodical way. Doesn't matter. See, today you can be like, uh, you can say I am a theist, but your name is Ayer, you are going to get like attacked. Your name is Shukla and Misra, you are going to get attacked. So this, uh, they need to somehow, in, and then fighting is also not that bad. People always see if you are going to take aggressive approach, you are going to fight for uh, certain things. 
you are taking a huge risk. Not fighting for a cause is much bigger risk than like fighting for a cause. Absolutely. This has to get simplified and this has to go to their mind. And we need to put an effort so that the common people can understand this. So, Rajivji, you must have heard about um, the, the lawsuit on Cisco and involvement of uh, one of our uh, close friends from IIT Bombay, uh, Sundar Iyer, and, and uh, Kompala, I think, uh, another gentleman involved. Okay, oh great, yeah. So Sundar, me and Sundar go back to IIT Bombay days. Um, he was my wingmate uh, in IIT Bombay, uh, same batch. Uh, so know him very well. Um, so when, so this happened like a couple of years back, my wife um, dropped into my basement. So I was working in the basement. And she said, you know, what kind of friends you have? You know, one of your friend um, is discriminating based on caste. Um, I'm like, what do you mean? Uh, he said, your friend Sundar, you know him, right? I'm like, yeah, I haven't talked to him like 20 years, but a close friend of mine, um, uh, discriminating based on caste, impossible. I know the guy, absolutely impossible. You know, he considers himself an atheist to start off with. And um, uh, Hindu atheist is what he calls himself. He always called himself that way. And the problem in that case is, you know, I instinctively knew that there is something wrong going on. Um, so the data that we found uh, was showing government abuse uh, from uh, government of California itself. So uh, that was a very fairly serious matter. So I think that needs to be you know, further investigated as to why would the government agency be involved uh, to that extent. Um, the second thing uh, which comes up in media very often, uh, it comes up in a very negative manner. Uh, but uh, the gentleman, uh, the John Doe who was suing, uh, has greatly benefited from the affirmative action system of IITs. So the affirmative action system of IITs, which is uh, benefiting the underprivileged, never comes up in this case from that perspective as well. So just wanted to bring that to your notice. And uh, some IITians have, you know, went in and created castgate.org. So I think it would make sense for uh, your team or yourself to take a look at it. They have worked very hard at it. You know, it would be nice if the people in IIT who are working on it were to get a copy of this, look at it, and then we can talk. Because we've done a lot of work on this. Now regarding what is going on, an issue that many of our people don't uh, realize is that, as this gentleman said, this is moving faster than we think. It is moving in a, in a systematic, programmed, planned way. There are, there are traditions, there are religions and ideologies which are training young people to get jobs in this DEI with a certain agenda in large corporates. A lot of corporate security and airport security. People of a certain background have a plan that to, to train their young people and get them security jobs. So you see, what are they doing? They are, they are getting, they are occupying strategic places, gatekeeping. Gate, these are gatekeeping roles in civic society. And the consequences of a certain ideology controlling the gates, whether it is security, whether it is DEI, or whether it is police department uh, deciding on hate speech, having your people, your ideological people control those gatekeeper jobs is a very, very big deal. We are sleeping. Some of the democratic governments actually support it. That is called wokeism. They support it. No, I'm saying they support it. It is they're ideologically supported. Like Trudeau supports it. 
Trudeau supports it. So you're not, it's not like he's sleeping, he, he wants it to happen. Certain, certain political forces in the United States support it. I mean, I don't want to turn this into partisan politics, but that is true. Wokeism is supported as a formal policy of certain political people. India is confused. The, the government is confused on this. They really haven't figured out what hit them, which is what we're trying to educate now. <laughs> Another thing I found interesting in the book was uh, all the tremendous research that you did. Uh, even when uh, there's talk about Marxism and uh, victimization, everyone jumping on the victimization wagon, some of the examples you quote is the way I construed it, you actually have to have powerful friends to be designated as a victim. Uh, for example, you gave an example of the Intel CEO, I think it was Intel CEO, who said, well, I'm a victim because I can't bring my Christian uh, policies to work. Uh, you talked about uh, UN passing uh, a day against Islamophobia and how uh, India, India said, well, uh, we're not against that. Why not expand it to say all religions, uh, including Hindus, and it was turned down. Uh, and what went through my mind was, well, with people with all the oil money, the people who have powerful friends, they uh, managed to get onto the victim bandwagon. Uh, and then you also have, of course, Subramaniam, uh, who is from Harvard, who's railing against the IIT Alumni Association. Rather, And you talk about how it's a double standard where she's not talking about Harvard having a good alumni association. And then, of course, with her uh, research with uh, no hypotheses, uh, no blind statistical data, uh, with a neat sample, just picking and choosing, as, as the Indian government, and then you talked about soft power and smart power. So what went through my mind was how can India develop those strong, powerful friends so it can actually turn some of these decisions to its own interest? And isn't this a great time with all the change happening in South Asia, China and everything, and the formation of quads for India to start can be a little bit smarter and have some strong, uh, uh, some powerful friends? Because I think we always feel that the truth will prevail. Satyameva Jayate, and we're right, so we're not worried. But in the world, you need strong, uh, powerful friends too. How, how can we do that? What, what trick are we missing? I'm Rajinder Singh from, and working with the World Bank. I was having just a very casual conversation with a very senior uh, Obama administration official who worked very closely with president at that time. I did not tell that I am from IIT and this thing, so I don't know. Somehow the discussion took a turn, and he mentioned that IITs, they have the kind of reputation that if I look at a CV and if I see IIT, no further questions asked. That was one, this thing. So the point what I'm trying to make that there are many friends in this country who who can work with us in kind of dismantling this kind of propaganda. That's one point. The second point, I spoke to uh, one of the IIT directors, ex-director, after I came to know about it. And my question was that during your tenure, you must have been chair of joint entrance exam. You know, this is by rotation. IIT directors are chairperson of this joint entrance examination system, how it is conducted, how papers are set and this thing. And I remember when he was IIT Delhi director, I asked this question and I wanted to reconfirm. 
And the meritocracy of IIT joint entrance exam is such that even the chairperson of joint entrance exam will not come to know if this person wants to know that my son was appearing in this and what's the fate of that person. That's the kind of merit. I, I'm not talking about uh, reservation and those things. It's, a, it's the way things are conducted. The third point I wanted to make beyond IIT, you know, our civil services exam, Union Public Service Commission, they conduct this exam. And I was like, when I was working with the government of India, I was selected as one of the panelists, uh, you know, because I, I appeared in UPSC exam, got selected and this thing. So they select uh, people from various this thing. One of the interviews, this thing. You know, the, the meritocracy and how fair is the system. Like if you are in the, you have to conduct the interview, let's say in this week, you will come to know, you are informed, you are on the panel, but you will get the notice maybe just one or two days before this. That's the level of, uh, so that, and you will absolutely have no idea who are the candidates who are appearing in front of you and this thing. So my suggestion is that, you know, there are many things. Let's, uh, let's publicize that also. And these people like IIT directors, maybe, you know, they have the code of conduct and this thing. But ex-directors, ex-faculty, they can talk a lot about that. You are trying to teach us meritocracy. Look at the look at the meritocracy. What it means. Thank you. I fully agree. The IITians. My whole purpose in writing this is to wake up the IITians that they have to stand up and be the ambassadors and make these points. They have the data. They have the lived experience. So we want to continue this discussion until you know we are non-ignorable. We have to become non-ignorable. They can't ignore this. They have to now get out and do something. IITians also have to get out of their shell and play a role as ambassadors. Who are the people who got all the benefit, like the scheduled caste and scheduled tribes, if they can come out and say good things about the system, I mean, where are those people? Yeah, the sold outs, yeah, the sold outs, exactly. And uh, one thing which I never see coupled with, when we talk about meritocracy and the defense of it, why don't we go on the offensive and say the reason we have uh, we, we have meritocracies because we have strong families. And it's not just that the child just became, you know, sure there are geniuses, people have drive, but a lot of that drive comes also from parents and strong family support. Right. And nobody tries to, you know, say, uh, you know, you should have, you know, as a counter to these people, you know, you are talking about dismantling things, dismantling families. Where, where do you think the meritocracy will come from? Suraj Yengde, who is Harvard's poster boy for Afro-Dalit, goes around telling Indian students there, dismantle family structure. And we've quoted him, we've got the video also of his, it's all written, you know. So why is he doing that? He says that uh, it is the family structure which per perpetuates the oppressiveness of Indian society from generation to generation to generation. What he really means is this meritocracy which he can't stand. Because you know, if a person like him is not product of meritocracy, he's product of identity politics. 
they brought him there because he, he says these kind of things and they like such a man. Yeah, so, so a lot of the discussion today really hovered around the intellectual leg legitimacy that the humanities and social science schools and departments at various universities lend to our opponents. So at the end of the day, that and that is transferring over to India as well as you described the NEP and then the liberal arts getting flooded by the same mindset folks. So the question then is if that's the hornet's nest, then how do we tackle that because that is now generating from the 200 that you said from 2001-2002 is now an uncountable number that you can't track anymore of these theses coming about and pro propagating this mindset in academia. I'll answer the question but just to tell you the problem speed at which it's going. Princeton, you know, home of all these Nobel laureates and all, uh, two very good friends of mine left the physics department considered one of the best in the world and went to Oxford. And the, off the record, he says, advancement opportunities are now going to be identity politics in this country, in the Princeton University. So that's how serious the matter is. Now, what are we going to do? Short term, medium term, long term? Short term, we have to acknowledge we have a problem and not say that we are immune because we're a great civilization and because everybody loves us and all. Because it's very difficult to mobilize Hindus to get active. Very, when, once you get them active, it all it takes is one guy to say, no, 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 they'll all clap and they'll say, ha, I'll go home, I, I did my, uh, you know, you have to understand the problem, you have to get people energized about it, it is a serious problem. And we can't be bipolar on the one hand, we are saying it's a serious problem, what to do on the other hand, we're saying, no, no, there's no problem. You know, we have to be consistent. If we believe there's a problem, then there's a problem, let's go for it. If you believe there's no problem, then don't complain. Why is there a problem? Yeah. So first, awareness has to be large scale. Second, there are certain critical junctions where we can intervene and dismantle the negativity, at least the momentum. So we are going to get <coughs> pressure on the Indian billionaires to put pressure on Harvard. So if certain people in India, and I can't disclose who, but we'll, we'll start putting some pressure on the billionaires, and the billionaires start picking up the phone and calling the Harvard Dean and so on saying, you know, I don't want this kind of nonsense because my countrymen don't like it and I'm patriotic and I don't want to, I don't need, uh, you know, I don't need uh, this uh, postmodernism. I'm an automobile manufacturer. I don't need postmodernism. I can shut it down. It doesn't matter to me. The moment they do that, the message to Harvard is very serious because, you know, if it got out in the public that Indian billionaires have walked out, it is a very bad thing for Harvard reputation. You know, so Harvard has to then figure out what to do, how to compromise, you know, how to balance it out. And, and that will then rip, have a ripple effect elsewhere, in media, in think tanks, in government, in school policies. So this is the disruptive element we are trying to disrupt. Then there is the constructive. Disruptive is not enough, like one gentleman said, that we have to have constructive also. We have to disrupt and construct. So the constructive is we need... Vedic liberal arts. We need Vedic liberal arts. There is not a single place in India. I go around, I've gone to BHU, I've gone to the Pondicherry, Auroville, I've gone to all the, all these uh, uh, Sanskrit places and I do not see a single Vedic liberal arts institution in India which is a center for research where we're taking the Kalas of, from Vedic 
talking about social justice from the vedic point of view talking about gender from the vedic point of view talking about the rights of uh, those communities that are weaker communities we have enough written in the dharmashastras the, the, we do not need to have social justice imported because the, what i tell the people at harvard is you've not been able to solve your own problem and you're exporting a solution you have not been able to solve your own problem in boston in the backyard of uh, in cambridge there is a racism going on you know the it's a, it is considered one of the rape capitals harvard university the number of women who've been com, uh, who come out and said they've been compromised so you know you got all these social justice problems on your campus you got it in your town you got it in your country and you know you're trying to teach other people what to do so the thing is india has solutions but we have not activated them this nep 2020 did not create what i wanted them to create which is vedic liberal arts you know some funding and some people for vedic liberals it's not about talking about you know that we had uh, pushpak viman in the ramayan and we had mahabharat we had nuclear bombs that sort of chauvinism is not going to help what you need is practical demonstrable solutions to today's social issues based on the vedic structures rajiv ji like you have been fighting this war for almost 30 year plus maybe 40 year 30 years and uh, it's uh, like our uh, what do you call it's our uh, uh, pleasure or not just pleasure it's like privilege to get involved in this kind of like effort so definitely we uh, we treat you as a guru and then whatever we can do from our side we'll definitely try to make logical sense and take a step and make it like a bigger mo- uh, movement very good so thank, thank you, you. Uh, let's give a big a standing ovation yeah. Yeah.